The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Chapter 9. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Pray with me. Father, you put a question to us there. What does it profit us to gain everything here that passes away? And to lose ourselves in it. Of course, the answer is, doesn't profit us at all. And I thank you for asking us and for putting it in front of us, off the lips of your son. I thank you for the challenge in it. And for the promise in it. You tell us, Lord, in the words of Jesus, that there is a life to be had. And you have then made it possible in the death of Jesus to find that life. Thank you. And I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would do a work among your people here this morning. That you you would do a work among all those who are gathered here to pry us loose from that which actually takes our lives from us and to fasten our grip tightly on that which actually gives us the life that we all want, we all seek, and that we were made for. Help us, Lord. Lead us in repentance. Lead us in faith. Speak through your word, Lord. Would you please make us people that rest in you and and are light on our feet and light in our hearts light in our our moods not light in a sense of of empty fluffy but light in a sense of happy and full of hope and joy the people who have found life and live it and are happy in that Help us, Lord, and free us this morning, I pray. Speak through your word. Make it clear. Bring it home to us. Draw us to be worshipers. Have your way in us, Father, Son, and Spirit. Have your way in us. For the good of Christ, and for the good of us, His church, I pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the book of Revelation and we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 2 and we're about halfway through now, right about halfway through this brief look that we're taking at the first three chapters of Revelation. We've, we've come here to find, we trust, in these 
first chapters, in particular in these letters to the seven churches, help from God to us to help us become the kind of church that would be pleasing to Christ, who is the head of the church. So that's what we're looking for. And we've seen now already in chapter 1, a couple of the basic themes of the book of Revelation and themes of these letters rise out, particularly the sovereignty of God the Father and God the Son. This is a tremendously Trinitarian book. And we have God the Father and God the Son, both equally divine in these chapters, and He is lifted up before us as the one in charge, sovereign over all things. And in particular, we see the second main theme introduced, sovereign over our hardship, over our tribulation and trouble, affliction. That also comes up in chapter 1. And it was particularly emphasized last week in what we saw the letter to the church in Smyrna. Chapter 2, that church there in that city was facing heavy tribulation and more was coming. And what Christ said to them, he introduced himself to them as the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who is over and in charge of all things, including tribulation for a purpose. He's got a purpose in that. And he tells them that and then exhorts them and encourages them to trust him, to not be afraid, but to remain faithful to him with their mindset and all the riches that he has poured out for them. And all the riches that he will pour out on them when he gives them the crown of life after death. So, so trust me, be faithful to me, don't be afraid. I've got it. That was the message last week. And then as we come to uh, our passage for this week, we see some similar thoughts. Tribulation comes up again in verses 12 and following. Tribulation from those on the outside, but mostly the focus in this letter, in this section, is trouble from within. Trouble that's inside the church. So Jesus has some words for the church this week about some things going on on the inside, about how they are thinking, about how they are acting and interacting with the world around. And so he's going to speak a word about the church and problems inside the church. And and as he speaks that same word to us, the, the common refrain in all these letters is, have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to us. And so as he speaks this to us, I mean, it might be a little bit of poke in it. And if there is, I just encourage you to remember, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Especially a friend like this one. Jesus. We often, we have a difficult time. We have a difficult time when we read something like, but I have a problem with you. That kind of sets us back, right? Just the language right away. And Jesus talks like that all the time in these letters. But this is the problem that I have with you. Doesn't sound like a friend, but it is. It's a friend. This is the Christ who has acted to save you and to make us. And so if he says, I've got a problem with you, it's coming from love. Have ears to hear it. I plead with you. He's going to express essentially this main point here. You could summarize this in a number of different ways. Here's how I'm expressing it this morning. The main point that I'll be working towards from this letter to the church in Pergamum. Christ will not accept dual allegiances. And we shouldn't either. Christ will not accept dual allegiances. Him plus two. He doesn't go for that. And and we shouldn't either. So that's what I'm going to work towards this morning. Let me read the passage. And then I'll make 
three different observations from it. This is chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Revelation 2. So I'm going to unpack the main point with three observations. and The first one is found with what pleases Christ in this church in Pergamum. Here's the first point. We honor Christ by holding on to Him amidst all tribulation. We honor Christ. Christ is pleased. We honor Him when we hold on to Him, no matter what happens amidst all the tribulation, all the trouble, all the affliction that comes to us in life. That's the first point. The letter begins here with with the usual structure. Christ giving the command to write some words to the church. He's right, these are the words of, and then he introduces himself. He always pulls something out of chapter 1. And here, what he pulls out is, these are the words of the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. It's from back in verse 16, chapter 1. Which you'll recall is the type of sword that would be a sword swung for lopping off things. So the image here is that of 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 a warrior on a horse swinging a sword in battle, or perhaps the image of an executioner swinging a sword in judgment. Cutting things off. That's the image. Then who holds the sword? Rome? Well, historically, yes, but no. Satan? No. Jesus is the one holding the sword. And that's important for Pergamum because this city was very Roman. Last week in Smyrna, you'll recall that the trouble that the church was facing came from the the very hostile Jewish population that did not like the church. Well, here it's different In Pergamum, the trouble is the Roman culture that allowed for a great variety of different religious worship things and different worship ideas and different idolatry. But in this city in particular, what was coming to be emphasized, and it was going on throughout all the empire, the worship of the emperor himself was coming on. This was growing throughout the whole Roman Empire. It stands behind the whole book of Revelation, in fact. And in Pergamum... This was the first city in all of Asia to be allowed to have a temple for the worship of the living Caesar. And it had been going on for decades now. So in the temple for the worship of the living Caesar, and at all the festivals that surrounded it, and all the sacrifices offered, and all the various feasts that were around it, and all the, the temple prostitution that was engaged with it, Caesar was hailed as God and Savior. 
which you can see how that would create a problem for Christians. Because the government is telling me to hail the Caesar as God and Savior, which I do not think is true. What am I going to do? This is going on throughout the whole Roman Empire. It was in full bloom in Pergamum. The power of the state welded to, joined to, this tremendously anti-Christ worship. And it's so strong there that verse 13 twice calls Pergamum at the beginning and at the end the place where Satan dwells and from where he rules. His dwelling place is throne. Satan's hometown. And it was so, so hard that at one point there had been a persecution and Antipas, this faithful witness, had been killed there. And how had the church responded? Well, despite all that, in the middle of verse 13, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the worst of it. Even unto death. You, you held on. You, that, which is something. I mean, this church said we are Christians and did not let go of the name of Christ. They did not stop worshiping together. They, they did not stop owning him in public. Antipas is called a, a faithful witness. He's giving testimony to him, though it cost him his life. I mean, this, this is commendable. And Christ is very pleased with it, very honored by that. And so that's the first point that we need to see. Christ is honored. He sees this. He knows it. He's pleased with it. That despite all the hardship and all the tribulation, they hold on to him. We should be a church. We should be people like that. And we've talked a fair bit about that already because this idea has come up a couple of times in previous letters or in the introduction in chapter 1. Tribulation and holding fast, remaining faithful to Christ amidst it is obviously what God wants for us. Whether our tribulation is because we're Christians or it's just some of the ordinary trouble and hardship in life, don't veer away from him, hold on to him. So we've touched on that already. And therefore, I want to lean on something that's a little different in verse 13. There's a slightly different flavor to it. A little flavor there that I think is worth thinking about. Christ's connection to us in the trouble, in the affliction. And I want to lean on it because it's easy to think about. I use the images like this with my hands. I show us holding on to something. It's easy to think about. I have trouble. I'm challenged. And what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to hold on to Jesus. Hold fast to him. Well, there's a little different flavor here that would help us realize that in those situations, that's true, but you probably can't see this very well. This is also true. He's holding on to you. There's an emphasis on Jesus and his presence and his ownership in this verse. Four times the personal pronoun my shows up. One of them doesn't show up in your English, but it's in the Greek. My, 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 my. It's about my name, my faith. He's my faithful one, my witness. There are a couple things to think about in that. The battle... In our our tribulation, it is our tribulation, but the battle there is not actually about me. The battle is about him. In a similar way, if you think about just a military battle, one army attacking another army on a hill, they want the hill. If you leave the hill, they'll leave you alone. They want the hill or the city that you're defending. They're after the battleground. 
and they want you to run away. In a, a similar way, rough analogy, a similar way, the battle is about the name of Christ, the, the gospel, the, the, the salvation that's in Christ. And if you were to abandon that, they won't attack you anymore. We are the battleground on, on which the issue is being fought out. And Christ is the warrior who holds the sword in this battle. It's not fundamentally your battle, which should be really good news if you think about who the warrior is. Yes, we have choices to make. Yes, we have to say no to sin. Yes, we have to have to take control of our thoughts and put them in the right place. Yes, but there is Christian, as you are in this battle, you yourself have a strong ally who is most concerned that he defend his name, his faith, his gospel, his message. The Great Commission is his, not mine to defend, his to defend. So you're in a battle with a great big, big brother, with a great big sword. His battle. He wants you to fight, yes, but it's his strength. And all in the battle, he owns you. Antipas, this one killed, is called my faithful one, my witness. He owns him. He's taken possession of him. He's taken possession of you and owns you. You're His. You are His treasured possession. And get So get around the idea of being owned in a negative sense and see it as owned in a positive sense. I'm possessed by this One. He's claimed me. At the cross, what has happened is that He has atoned for you has forgiven you of your sin and has adopted you into his family and said, this one is now mine. Antipas, well, of course, he's faithful. I haven't been faithful. I I talk to Christians about this sort of thing where you've been attacked and fallen for one of Satan's common attacks He lures you out by saying, you can sin, he'll forgive you. And then you've crossed the river on on the bridge, and then he tries to burn the bridge behind you and say, you've sinned, you can't be forgiven. Not, Not for that. Oh my goodness. If people knew that. He can't burn the bridge. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, though we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. He has owned you and has come to live in you and, and the bridge is made out of rock. It can't be burned. It's solid. It can't be torn down. There's always a bridge back. Christian, if you're a Christian, he's, he's a great big forgiver. You can't out his grace. He owns you. Even in your faithlessness. Now, he wants faithfulness, certainly, of course. But he is a great forgiver. He is a great, gracious forgiver of even that sin. 
whatever that may be. So you're in this battle, you're in this tribulation, this trouble that you're facing in life, even if it's self-inflicted, which some of it is, and you should stand there knowing, I have a great big, big brother, a great warrior beside me, who says to me, you're mine, I own you. I'm a sinner, I caused half of this, I know. I've taken care of that, you're mine, you're with me, and I got this. Yeah, you have tribulation, yeah, you have trouble, but yeah, you have Christ, and Christ has you. And he says that you are mine. What a blessed thing it is to be owned, to be owned by him. But there's another danger here. We can't just say, thankfully I'm owned by him. And in my sin there is a bridge back, so therefore my sin doesn't matter. No, it does. If, if you think, I have one, I, I'm, I'm possessed by one, he wants faithfulness in that, he's, he's working towards that, so I should want that too. And that's what the second point moves us towards. His desire in us, in, in us the people, for a, a single allegiance. A single allegiance to Him. It's good for a married man not to abandon his spouse. It's good for the church to say, we own Christ, even in the hardship. It's good for a married man not to abandon his spouse. But he also has to forsake all others. Hold fast to the spouse and forsake all others. And what's going on in the church in Pergamum is they're holding fast to the spouse and embracing others. And that's the problem. So let's look at the second observation then. A Christ-honoring church refuses to be joined to the world's idolatry. It refuses to be united to the world's idolatry. That which the world chases after, that which the world's thinking and behaving revolves around. And talk about idolatry. Obviously there is real, tangible, physical idolatry with little statues set up in temples. But far bigger than that, idolatry is the setting up of something that isn't God as the thing that's central to my life, my thinking, my wanting, my acting, around which I, I circle, and when I don't get it, I'm disappointed. Idolatry. It's rampant in the world. It's rampant in the human heart. It's against Christ. And a Christ-honoring church resists that and refuses to be joined to it. Fights against it. That's the problem in Pergamum. Okay, so starting in verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you. Here essentially is what it is. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Hold, same word. You're holding on to Christ, and you also have some who are holding on to the teaching of Balaam. Trying to get both of these things at once. That's not going to work. What, what is the teaching of Balaam? Well, okay. You can read about the whole story in Numbers 22 through 25, but to summarize it, long story made short, Balaam was a pagan prophet who told the Moabite king Balak how to get Israel. 
He told him that a frontal attack against Israel, an attempt to curse them, you know, cast some sort of a curse on them, would not work because God's covering over them was too strong, but an indirect flank attack, that would work. Here's what you do, Balak, and he taught him. Seduce the children of Israel into, seduce them, lure them into joining themselves to the idolatry and the related immorality of the land. Seduce them to embrace that. That'll offend God, and they themselves will drive him off. They'll offend him so with their idolatry that he'll leave them, or maybe if we're lucky, even turn against them. So that's what Balak did, and that's what happened. You can read about it in Numbers 25. And it's about to happen in Pergamum too, verse 15. So also, just like how Balak held to the teaching of Balaam, so also you have some in the church who are holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't have all the details there, obviously, but, but judging from the parallel with the Balaam and Balak, knowing the situation there, the Nicolaitans are saying something like this in the church. Yes, absolutely, let's hold to Jesus. But have you seen the party going on over at the temple? All the festivals there and the sacrifices, the plentiful, abundant, choice meat. I mean, it's the best of all the animals that they have at the, at the Caesar's temple. There's good food and, and pleasurable times in other ways over there. We could go there, it'd be so fun, we could get connected to the movers and shakers in the society because everybody who's anybody is there. We could go there, we could connect, absolutely we'll hold on to Jesus. We may, we might have to just fudge on the, the Savior God thing, but a lot of people don't believe that anyway. We could go there and it would probably even remove some of the stigma off the church because they'd see that we can come here, we can be okay with this too. We'll hold to Jesus, we'll go to the temple, we'll eat the food, we'll participate, it'll be fine, come on, let's go. The two together. But it won't be fine. Because Jesus says, in verse 16, the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword of judgment says, repent. Stop and turn away from that idea. I am not down with double allegiance. I'm not. No. Turn away from that and away from anybody who teaches the idea, and if not, I will come soon and war against those who hold it. This is tremendous and sobering and alarming. In Numbers 25, God himself struck down 25,000 Israelites. Dead. Jesus, in a similar setup, I'm going to bring a sword and war against Members of the church. That's sobering. We just be brought up and, and stopped by that and caused to see this is serious. These folks are Christians or at least strongly professing Christians who are also trying to partner up with the world. And Jesus says, no, no. It's serious, so we better figure out what it means for us. Because, we've got to acknowledge, given the fact that we don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, I mean, some particular cultures do, maybe even some in America do, not mainstream American culture, though. Given that we don't eat 
meat sacrifice to idols and we don't participate in ritual prostitution at temples or at religious festivals, how does this connect to us? We should think about it. We need to figure it out because there's something serious here. And it's written to the churches. What does it mean? Well, notice what we're looking for. False teaching from within the church. It's rising up from within. You have some there in your midst. False teaching from within the church that lures Christians to try to be, it invites them, it tempts them to try to be Christians who also embrace the idolatry of the world. Christians who hold fast in the name of Christ and will not abandon Him, but also say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go seek some pleasure and some satisfaction, some happiness, some contentment in the same stuff that the world is doing. I go bow down over there too. From within the church, people in the church laying out that stumbling block. So what is that? I tried to think about what this would mean, how it would connect to us, and I think it would vary from culture to culture. But mainstream American culture, the American church today, I think, and I I submit this to you for your consideration, but it seems to me that the largest way in which most American Christians are trying to and very clearly are holding on to Christ and are not abandoning Christ but also are reaching out to grab hold of the idolatry of the world, but the largest way in which that happens is the big, broad area of what I'll call the pursuit of the American dream. The American church and us, we are Christians who, like our next-door neighbors, are very focused on the pursuit of attainment of and securing of that combination of financial bounty, freedom from limit and obligation for the sake of maximum personal pleasure and ease. That's what American life circles around. The American dream. And tragically... Some from within the church are laying out this stumbling stone in front of us. Overtly, I could point at people like Joel Osteen. Some of you have never heard of him. Some of you know him too well. A leading representative of what's called the health and wealth gospel that presents to the church from what they call a pulpit on a Sunday morning and write it in books that are in Christian bookstores. I mean, this is tragic. This is tragic. It is a stumbling, it is the teaching of Balaam in the church. Selling the idea that the Christian can and should have all that the world has to offer while being a Christian. Stop and think about that. How does that jive with 1 Corinthians 4 where Paul lays out for us a model life a life that he modeled on Christ and models for us, a life where he describes himself as like last of all led out to the slaughter, disregarded, disdained, dishonored, sacrificing, laying down everything that I have. How does that jive with you should be attaining all of this? If God were going to bless you, he'd give you everything, the, the bounty of the earth. 
It's a lie. Life in the kingdom of God is not the life lived enjoying and pursuing the American dream. Have you bought it? Do you pursue and regard as desirable all the same money and vacations and boats and cars and second homes and timeshares and gadgets and the gadgets that you need to organize the gadgets and the hobbies and the pastimes that the world chases and buys? Are what you're looking forward to and what you're daydreaming about and what you're aspiring to the exact same things that Joe next door is? Is it? When you strive to set aside time, when you're carving out your schedule time, is it time that in some way you're hoping to be able to use for the kingdom or in some way to use to chase after this other American contentment? And, and careful, just careful as you examine yourself, because sometimes we say, I want to spend that with my family. What you mean is you want to spend it with your family pursuing the American dream. Laying out a stumbling block in front of your kids. Now, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And I'm throwing rocks, and I live in a glass house. Okay? I want to be really clear about that. I'm not telling you what your problem is. I'm suggesting to you what our problem is. If I'm really honest, probably, probably the biggest reason that I don't have a second home or go on vacation to Europe every summer is that I can't afford to. If I could, I probably would. That says I have the same problem. I just don't have the resources to feed it. And maybe you don't have the resources to feed it yet, but you're hoping to one day when you graduate or get promoted. This is extremely complicated. Because immediately, immediately, all kinds of questions arise. Well, okay, go to Europe on vacation every, every year. Can I go once? Or can I never go to Europe? Can I go on vacation at all? Can I go on vacation for two weeks or only for one week? And if I can't buy a second home, what about my first home? And how nice of a home can that be? And how many bedrooms should it have? How many baths? I don't know. I have no idea, which is part of the tremendous confusion that strikes me in all this because it, it gets hopelessly confusing. The lines about where you draw, you can't do this, you can't do that, you shouldn't buy this, but this is permissible. Especially when you throw on there, but doesn't God want me to enjoy the good things He gives me? Because I want to say carefully, yes. Carefully, perhaps a better way to phrase that might be, no, I... I let me say what I mean clearly. A better way to phrase that would be, He wants you to enjoy His goodness in the things He gives you. 
with what He gives you, turning you back to Him and showing Him to be good. He gives you good things so as to increase your joy in Him. Yes, He wants you to enjoy them, to enjoy Him in them. The lines are all complicated. It's difficult. How do you answer that question? Okay, so let me give you a couple of potential helps. If you want to read more about this and think more about it, I can throw three books your way. One I've already mentioned, the book Radical. I think we probably have it on our book table. We do from time to time. Radical. Another book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn. Or there's a chapter which I found very helpful. This is the deepest of the three. A chapter in John Piper's book called When I Don't Desire God. And the chapter is called How to Wield, as in wielding a sword, How to Wield the World in the Fight for Joy. In other words, you're supposed to use the world. What He gives you, use it in your fight for joy. He channels, as He often does, He channels a whole bunch of C.S. Lewis in that chapter. If you like C.S. Lewis, you'll like that chapter. Very helpful. But maybe you don't need to read more. Maybe you just need to stop and just ask yourself the question, whether or not you are a Christian who's chasing all the same things that your neighbor's chasing. Yes or no? Maybe, maybe you don't really need to go that much more complicated than that. Now, just because I, I don't want to be accused of misstating something, I want to very briefly... And I mean very briefly because I don't want to provide the little crack here that everybody runs out. But I want to very briefly say, I do believe you can go on vacation to Europe and that you can own a second home and that you can buy a second car, etc. Let me close that. Don't run out. Because often that's what we're looking for. Oh, thank goodness. Therefore, my vacation and my home and my is, is justified. Thank goodness you might need to read and think a little bit about that. But I I think there are ways you can answer that, yes, carefully. But have you stumbled over the American dream? And are you passing on a stumbling block to your kids if you're parents? I realize I've raised more questions than I've answered, but take the main point to heart. A Christ-honoring church, Christians, resist and refuse the pursuit of and the joining to the world's idolatry while holding on to Christ. He's not down with double allegiance. And a Christ-honoring church realizes that and does what it can to let go. And in the does what it can, the third point gives us some help. Before I give you the third point, I want to set it up, though. Because you've got to notice how this works. This is so sweet of God. God is so good to us. So good to us. These, all these lines about don't do this and do do this and do buy this and you can't buy that and you can have a second home if that gets so incredibly complicated And God helps us in a marvelous way. And here's how it works. An example from my life. A few years back, I started playing more golf. 
started buying various things that I needed, not, not spending a bunch of money, but, you know, some golf balls here and, you know, accumulating some things and going to the driving range to practice and then going to actually play golf. I was doing it. I, I felt like it was not controlling my life, that it wasn't an idol in my life, so I'm not trying to say that it was something wrong, but I stopped playing golf. I think I've played nine holes of golf in the last three years. Not because I think it's wrong. Understand that. But because my tastes, my desires have changed. Now, I, I will still play golf. I'll play golf with a number of you guys. I'll enjoy it. We'll enjoy it. We'll have a good time. But understand, my desires have changed, and I've come to realize that the time and money that I'm spending on golf is in the way of something else that I would much rather do with the time and money. So it was not, here's the point, a thou shalt not, but a wouldn't you rather? And without even thinking about it, I said, I would rather. Not because I've decided that I shouldn't, or I'm being held away from it, but because I'm being drawn to something that I'd rather That's how the third observation works. So here's the third point, and I'll I'll be brief on this. Conquer by setting your mind on the feast to come. Conquer this lure towards the idolatry of the world. All that it's offering you. I mean, in in Pergamum, physically, it's offering a party with a bunch of food and women. Your average guy notices that. In America, it's offering actually the same thing. Maybe change the women part, men too, relationships, significance. It's a lure. How do you conquer that? You conquer that by setting your mind on the feast that is to come. He, he commands repentance in verse 16. And he's got the thing about the sword there. That's serious. We've got to note that. It is fine and appropriate and right for God to tell us what to do. He's God. We aren't. So we've got to hear that and respect that and note that and fear that and respond to that. But that is not primarily how God works in us. Again and again and again, all throughout the Bible, God is so repeatedly clear on this, which is marvelous. He is wonderfully clear that He does not work, He does not speak to us primarily, He does not seek to change our hearts primarily with a thou shalt not, but with a wouldn't you rather. We're cozying up to the world, and He says, wouldn't you rather, and He says it right here at the end of this letter, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. What's manna? Manna, the bread that came down from heaven day after day after day to feed the people. That's picked up in the New Testament. Who is the bread? Who is the bread that comes down from heaven to feed us so that we never hunger again? You can't see Him. And you got to trust He's going to come tomorrow. I can't hoard Him today. i got to find the mercy new every morning. But great is His faithfulness. He's there. He's there. Hidden, but there tomorrow. Hidden, but there tomorrow. I'll give him you to you to eat today and tomorrow and the next. And a white stone with a new name. What is that about? Well, 
back in that day when organizations, whether they be a uh, temple, people who worship a particular god, a, a particular trade, like all the, the barrel makers, for instance, they had feasts that usually included the worship of their particular god. And so they had this sort of setting with the meat sacrifice and sometimes the dancing and sometimes other things. And when something was particularly desirable, they had to limit attendance. And the white stone was the ticket. The entrance ticket. Marked in a particular way so that you can't copy it. And I know that I actually, that you get a legitimate one. You went into this feast? Show me your ticket. Here it is. Yep. Come on in. I'll give you a ticket to a feast that you can't imagine. That's what Jesus says to the church. I'll give you manna to eat right now and a ticket to a feast that you can't even dream of. A great feast with more bounty than you can hold in your hands in a thousand lifetimes, ten thousand lifetimes. I'll pour out on you at that feast the riches of heaven to the one who conquers. Wouldn't you rather? Wouldn't you rather taste this now and see the goodness of the Lord? And wouldn't you rather have that forever and ever and ever? But you can't have that and have this. Let go. To the one who conquers, I give from the hidden manna and a white stone with a name. May the church hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray. Father, I am thankful for your vast promise that you own me now, that you own my brothers and my sisters now. You have made us your people. And while you pursue faithfulness in us, you do not abandon us. You own us. You call us. You drive us, you urge us, you lure us with your kindness towards repentance. So I pray then for my brothers and sisters here that you would invite them, that you would issue to them, put it in their hands, an invitation to a feast. Hors d'oeuvres served every day, manna from heaven. But a feast that's coming. Invite them. Set their minds and change their desires. Change their desires so that they would rather, they would see the beauty of you and all that you offer. And they would rather pursue that. Lord, you are good now. You give us good things now. Teach us all. Lord, there is such great, in my mind, such great confusion and complication on the particulars of life. Lord, if there are particular issues that 
My brothers and my sisters here are wondering about, what, what should I do about this or that? Lord, bring wisdom somehow. Bring counsel around them. Bring wisdom on particular issues. That over all of it, Lord, would you woo their tastes so they can hold the things of the world lightly and use them with a, a certain appropriate disaffection. Help us, Father. We are your children. We are in need of help. So I pray, help us. We do not want to succumb to teaching that grieves you and quenches you and separates you from us to a degree that's possible. I know you won't leave, but you can be grieved and quenched. We don't want that. So help us, Father, I pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.